0: Thank you. It's Thursday, May 28, 2020. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is the Pen Pod, a limited run podcast from Pen America. On today's edition, standing up for the right to protest. The right to demonstrate is under assault at the state level, even as the president urges on protesters who rally against COVID related lockdowns. We're out with a new paper this week. Then, remembering greatness, poet Joseph Brodsky would have turned 80 this week. We reflect on his life and a new collection of his work with Ann Chelberg. I'm Stephen Fee, all that coming up on the Pen Pod. While nationwide lockdowns have put at least some public demonstrations on hold, the right to protest has come into the spotlight as armed demonstrators have marched on state capitals to protest stay-at-home orders. For the past year, our U.S. Free Expression Program Director, Nora Benavides, has been studying just how the right to protest has been threatened by state laws that fly in the face of the U.S. Constitution and the First Amendment. In a new paper out this week, Nora and her team found that bills criminalizing the right to protest are on the rise. For more, Nora Benavides joins me now. Hi, Nora.
1: Hey, Stephen. It's so great to be back.
0: I know. It's lovely. It's lovely. So Nora, give me a sense of uh, what's been happening at the state legislative level when it comes to the right to protest.
1: Well, to understand what's happening with legislatures, we need to also understand what is going on with protests. And frankly, protests have been on the rise for the last several years. We've seen Black Lives Matter protests really come out in force, um, trying to push back against the killings of Black men and women. We've seen Dakota Pipeline and Associated Protests really trying to target and push back against the kinds of critical infrastructure and pipeline construction that are happening on sacred Native American and tribal lands. We've seen women's march, uh, you know, numbers that are frankly the biggest protest numbers we've seen in our entire history as a nation. We've seen then uh, students coming out after gun violence issues have surged in their schools. I mean, the last few years have really just been kind of amazing. And from a First Amendment perspective, people are out in the streets, they are exercising their rights. What we've seen then closely follow so many of these protests are that state legislatures have been introducing bills specifically targeting many of the types of activities and tactics that these protesters use. And so it feels like oftentimes legislatures introduce bills to criminalize what protesters are doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess the question is, I mean, so, so the way you're framing it, it seems like is it's, it's a reaction to these, these bills. And, and your report, it's pretty amazing that basically before 2015, there were like a handful of these restrictive protest bills. And then suddenly we see uh, this rash of them come out over the last four or five years, right?
1: That's correct. And, you know, when I started doing the research, I'll be really honest because I feel like the podcast is such a fun under the hood look at things I really did not want to assume or or start with any kind of, um, you know, conclusion about what our president has done to this and whether there are targeted efforts to silence people based on him. So we started looking at what happened in 2015, far before, you know, President Trump even was an announced candidate running for office. And what we saw is that in 2015 and 2016, there were literally only six bills proposed around the whole country that tried to limit protest rights. What's then been so interesting is that by 2017, that number surged to 56 bills around the country.
0: Hmm. And, and so, so these... Go ahead, please.
1: Well, so it feels like these are absolutely reactionary bills that once we're really seeing people out in the streets trying to exercise their expressive rights, their First Amendment rights much in the same breath than legislators are saying, you know, we introduced this bill to target exactly what those protesters did. And many legislators have actually gone so far as to say that publicly. They've said, I introduced this bill after this protest, because we need to prevent people from doing this. Or we need to prevent people from wearing masks in public, which is the ultimate irony now that we're seeing people wearing masks all the time for different all the reasons. Time. But. You know it's just fascinating to watch because legislators have been very bold and emboldened more and more over the years,
0: yeah, I mean, I guess you know there's there's a devil's advocate position, which is okay, fine, so you know these bills don't necessarily say you can't protest, but they say things like you have to pay for law enforcement costs, you have to pay for cleanup costs, you know uh, you can't wear a mask because there's a public safety element there. I mean, what do you say to those who say maybe these bills make sense?
1: Well, one, I think these bills in many ways do make sense, at least the way they're crafted. Part of what's been really ingenious about the, the way they're written is that many of them could potentially pass what we call constitutional muster, that maybe they're okay. What we're concerned about is that, frankly, these bills generally are really beginning to redefine how we think about protest, which I find incredibly dangerous. And I'll kind of explain a few different ways, but more or less, these bills often uh, heightened penalties for existing criminal activity. So what could have been simply um, someone obstructing traffic now brings with it a new criminal charge of five to 20 years in prison for walking on a public roadway. That's the very wow. type of thing where uh, there's already a criminal charge that someone could bring saying, you're obstructing traffic by blocking you know, these cars. But instead, the penalty is higher. And so what it means is that people will suddenly think to themselves, or we think they will, wow, if if I actually do engage in protest, I could be facing five to 20 years in prison. Or I could be facing charges as a domestic terrorist if I were to protest even near, let's say, a pipeline construction. And some of the most terrifying bills are ones that we see even people like lawyers, like me, or lawyers at the ACLU, if you give a training to would-be protesters, you could potentially be prosecuted as supporting rioting. And so what we're seeing- Just for giving
0: is legal advice, basically. Just
1: for giving legal advice that may not even come to pass. People could potentially not even be protesting. But you might be seen then and were worried that these statutes would be really kind of weaponized and used in a way to target people who are actually just trying to educate people about their rights. And so more and more, these bills aren't just, you know, trying to create public safety mechanisms for protection. They are rewriting how we define what protest is. And by redefining it, they're narrowing it. And what it means is that everyone will think twice.
0: Yeah. Well, I want to ask you that. I mean, you talked to a lot of activists for this paper. Is it working? Is it having the effect of dampening people's, you know, uh, 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 likelihood to go out and demonstrate?
1: Well, I want to give you the easy answer by saying, yes, it's working. I think there's a a kind of silver lining here. You know, because our numbers, our protest numbers have just surged over the last several years, I'll be honest, I'm someone that did not protest before 2014. And when I started, I was a newbie, if you will. A lot of us are newbies. And so we're less experienced with knowing how to think about the law and how to know what our rights are. And so these bills are absolutely chilling people's expressive rights. People are now, especially those that have never exercised those First Amendment rights, they've never marched in the streets, we're, a lo- we're seeing so many people think twice. Activists that I've talked to have said they get people coming to them asking about, well, will I get arrested if I engage in this march? And when it comes down to it, the problem is that so many people opt to not because they don't want to get arrested, which is absolutely understandable
0: yeah yeah well let me ask you one more question i mean one of the things that you all point out is that like these bills look pretty similar state to state and that's not a coincidence right
1: (laughs) it's not a coincidence um you know we've seen a lot of different types of bills the often they look really similar so we've seen many i'll give you three examples one is bills that target people who are uh, marching on highways or public roads And a lot of those bills just increase the penalties for people blocking traffic. And they're often kind of copycat bills. We've also Mm -hmm. seen bills that increase penalties if you are seen to be somehow unlawfully protesting, which is an absurd, frankly, um, framework to even think about because protesting is never unlawful. A protest could be unlawful, but not the act of it. And then the real big category of similar bills we've seen are in the critical infrastructure arena regarding protests around pipeline construction. And a lot of that goes back to a model bill that ALEC introduced, which is a consortium of experts that have really crafted a kind of bill to target anyone who is nearby or protesting around pipeline, oil or gas uh, construction sites. And some of these bills have sprung up, frankly, in states that don't even have pipeline construction, which is just fascinating. Hmm. People introduce it to chill, would-be protesters, and there isn't even the threat of that. Um, and, yeah. and so it's just, it's everywhere. And it's, it's really not going away. I'll, I'll say one thing, you know. We thought it might dampen in 2020, but we've already seen over 16 bills in this similar vein introduced that are, again, trying to target mainly pipeline protests.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess the the first part of solving the problem is naming the problem, which is what you and your team have done in this report. Nora Benavidez is director of U.S. Free Expression Programs at PEN America. Thanks, as always. Thanks, Stephen. This week, Russian poet Joseph Brodsky would have turned 80 years old. Forced from the Soviet Union in 1972, he settled in the U.S. and received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1987 and served as U.S. Poet Laureate in 1991. This month, a new collection of his poems will be published, edited by Anne Chelberg. She's also editor of the book review newsletter Book Post, and she joins me now. Hi, Anne. Hi, Stephen. So tell me about why you think uh, Joseph Bronsky's poetry still resonates some 24 years after his death.
2: Well, uh, the main reason is, of course, that it's excellent. I mean, that really, really strong poetry lives long after its moment. And often it's said that a poet's uh, legacy kind of quiets a bit when they're no longer there to speak for themselves and then comes sort of roaring back when people can hear them afresh. So I think Joseph is now reaching this point where the, uh, the kind of an eternal strength of his poems are coming back to us. But um, I think there's also another feature of the way we experience poetry now in America that makes Joseph relevant. And it's kind of something I tried to get at in the introduction to the selection of his poems I just published, um, which is that now we have this incredible moment of vitality in American poetry. And a lot of it is around articulating your experience and kind of creating the voice of American poetry that includes all sorts of different experiences and origins. And when Joseph came to America as an exile, his experience was quite rare. He, you know, um, he was writing in another language as an American. I mean, he became an American citizen kind of pretty soon after he arrived. Um, And sort of trying to forge that identity of being someone who was from both places. Um, Now that's pretty widespread. You have a lot of great poets from other countries living here as teachers, living here as poets, um, living here as Americans, um, and, you know, living within two languages. Um, And so I think that element of poetry that is about uh, speaking to experiences from all over, um, drawing them into the poetic language, reshaping the poetic language around different origins. I think Joseph really, his work really speaks to that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, speaking of that, you have a piece in the New York Review of Books that that talks about Brodsky and, 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 and focuses on the Russian language in particular. And at one point that Brodsky believed um, that once in exile, he'd no longer write poems. Why is that? And what changed?
2: Well, you know, the, there are elements of his story that are kind of a mystery to me. He, as an American, he lived a very, he had a very strong presence. He was uh, kind of charismatic. He was Um, gregarious. He was all over the place, but he had endured this uh, trauma that he spoke of very little. And he didn't think that uh, talking about the dreadful things that had happened to you was um, kind of really in good taste or something. So to me, this moment when he arrived and feared that he wouldn't be able to write... That's just, I, I see within that this um, shadow of this very vulnerable person whose life I don't know about. I, another moment like that in his life was when his parents died in Russia after he had worked for years to be able to see them or to have them um, brought to America for medical treatment. And the Soviets completely refused. So he was never able to see his parents after he left. And I think that was a very heartbreaking moment for him. So... You know, he did not foreground the emotional side of, um, of his experience, but it, it definitely in the way that he spoke about being a Russian language poet in America, it was clear that the he learned to discover that the language lived on in him, even though he wasn't hearing it in the streets in the same kind of daily way. He, he really kind of found it in himself, um, of course, he had many friendships. He knew many other Russians who lived in America. He he corresponded with people a lot in Russian. But um, I think uh, artists really draw on the daily spoken language. And to find a way to create art that has vitality when you've been severed from your spoken language is a struggle. And I think it took him a while to arrive at that. Yeah.
0: I, I want to know more about this Collection that you edited, and how you think it helps us deepen our understanding of Joseph Brodsky as a as a poet.
2: Uh, Well, uh, pretty shortly after Joseph died, I put together a book that had all of the poems that he brought into English. Um, It, you know, it's a it's a big gulp. I put in some other things that I thought people would, you know, that he wanted preserved. I put in a lot of apparatus, and I realized over time that that's kind of a lot for people it's not really there's no point of entry in such a big career so I've been thinking for a while about how to um, uh, sort of frame his poems and his life for a new generation also there was there's always been argument around his translation because he he was a he li- he really lived in American English he um, he had an active life as a American literary person. And he really wanted to shape his um, translations into English. And many people have argued that that was not the, mo- the best approach. <laughs> you should have left right. that to someone else. So I tried to put together a book that would really make a case for what he accomplished in English. And I, I tried to single out the poems that were the most successful in in English and that had a kind of an arc. So there are many really important poems that Joseph wrote in Russian that don't appear in this book. It's not every great um, poem Joseph wrote in Russian, but it's the um, it's a kind of uh, bouquet of what you can experience of him in English, sort of directly in his voice.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's exciting. Well, I, you know, it's interesting because you know it's coming at such a, a an unusual time, obviously for for the world amid this pandemic. And, you know, we had a lot of people come on this podcast and talk about how they've actually turned to poetry right now um, as a response to the coronavirus. I'm wondering why you think that is.
2: Well, you know, I think it's gonna sound schlocky, but uh, poetry is a medium that addresses uh, vital, ultimate questions. Um, you know, I think, when people try to think about what the difference is between uh, poetry and fiction. Fiction is about our daily lives. It, 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 I mean, these are obviously oversimplifications, but it, it, it kind of embraces the temporal and the moment. And poetry has always strained to arrive at what uh, out, outlasts that, what is beyond our current experience. And I think at the moment, we're in such a time of, of confusion and grief and disarray that um, we're once again really struggling to arrive at um, the essential, the, the the comforts and also sort of the answers of to bigger questions. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I want to I want to see if I can plumb that a little bit more because, you know, this week actually at at PEN America or or recently at PEN America we released this index looking at imprisoned writers worldwide, mm-hmm. and you know Russia is is on that list. And obviously, Brodsky had to leave under very different circumstances at a very different time of, uh, of Russian history. And yet here we are, you know, with, with so many writers imperiled around the world. And, and you know, I, I'm curious, I mean, do you think that we get a sense of what that peril looks like through his work? Can we better understand what it's like being a, a dissident writer if we sit down and we read this collection?
2: Uh, well, Joseph was always uh, very resistant to being tagged as a dissident writer, and I think part of that was that he didn't want um, uh, he didn't want his work to be read as uh, a, a kind of news, as commentary just on the moment, and uh, something he he saw himself as part of the uh, longer, larger horizons of literature, and not just a product of that particular moment. But as I think about, you know, the kind of literature we've been seeing in America in the last couple of generations, and the kind that I think may come out of this moment, I begin to see again, the value or the uh, um, kind of the strength of the argument that times of, of trauma produce something special in literature, I mean, that they drive people to um, to confront things that when when things are going well, we don't necessarily always face. Um, you know Joseph was himself imprisoned but uh, before he was thrown into exile. <clears throat> he He was um, imprisoned in psychiatric institutions and he was in um, involuntary exile in the far north. And he actually uh, sort of embraced his his experience in involuntary exile for the, uh, the solitude and the simplicity of that time that he could really read and contemplate and not be caught up in the um, the sort of the mayhem of uh, kind of social literary life. Um, so I think there are many facets to what happens to literature under stress. And... Um, you know, we can see that coming out in the uh, in the great writers who are still imprisoned around the world. And I think we may see some of that in the writing that comes out of this moment.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Well, And finally, if I may, what are you reading right now?
2: Ah, well, you know, I run a book review. <clears throat> so I'm always kind of dipping into a lot of things and reading a lot of critics and trying to find people to write for the review. Um, but um, kind of in this vein, I'm about to... Do a review of um, uh, Shalamov's Kalima Tales, which are these uh, stories that were written about the Gulag um, Mm -hmm. many years ago in Russia by a Russian-American poet. You know, someone in the kind of contemporary vein of Joseph, living in America. Her name is Polina Barskova. Um, uh, She writes poems in Russian, but she teaches in English and is a you know also a part of American literary life. So I've never read Shalamov's Kalima Tales before, and uh, the New York York Review Books has just brought out another selection of them so i'm finally reading them they're very very powerful and uh, paulina's introduction to them is really powerful and another person that i have a connection to through joseph is uh we have this um joseph's widow and i run a foundation that sends russian writers and artists to italy um trying to kind of promote a more international conversation around writing um in the midst of you know before we were facing this pandemic, we saw such increasing divisions between our countries and between many countries around nationalism and kind of digging in. So uh, Joseph was um, very much kind of positioned against the that kind of national self-isolation and wanted to promote um, uh, international values in art. So he wanted to create this I'm getting way off the track, this American, uh, this Russian Academy in Rome, like the American Academy. So we've been working to build this thing. And one of our fellows is named um, Maria Stepanova. She runs um, uh, a very forward thinking magazine in Russia called Kolta, And she had a really important book that kind of swept the world called In Memory of Memory, which is being published in America, I think next year. And I've been um, reading some Managed to peek at some translations from that, and her new book of poems is um, being published in English uh, shortly. Um, called what's it called? The War of the Beasts and Animals, um, in beautiful translations by Sasha Dugdale. So there are, those are two th- kind of legacies of Joseph that have come into my path recently, and I'm grateful. Yeah.
0: For Oh, that's wonderful. Well, obviously, we're we're going to celebrate uh, uh, Brodsky's 80th birthday this week. Ann Chelberg is editor of Joseph Brodsky Selected Poems, 1968 to 1996.
2: Thanks so much, Ann. Thank you.
0: And that's our episode for Thursday, May 28th, 2020. Join us tomorrow for the Pen Pod. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Sign up on our website for our daily Dare newsletter. That's where we track major stories about literature, free expression, and the news of the world. I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you tomorrow.